Welcome to another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have my brother who is just a few weeks out from being one of the country's, uh, I can't say first, but one of the country's few black governors we've ever had in the history of the union. I'm so proud of this brother. I mean, he has just done amazing work and run an amazing campaign. Uh, none other than Wes Moore, the next governor from the great state. Now, are y'all a state, a commonwealth, a republic? What is Maryland called? We're a state. All We're right. State. I don't because, you know, you people get mad about that stuff on here. <laughs> they so sure got, do. <laughs> the great state of Maryland. What's going on, Wes? How you feeling, man? Man, it is good to see you, brother. And listen, I'm uh, I'm just excited to be, to be uh, following your footsteps, man, and uh, excited to go on this journey with you. But, uh, but I'm proud of everything you're doing. I really am. And look, thank you so much. I remember when I ran uh, in 2014 statewide and got 43% of the vote. And then after that, you had uh, Stacy and uh, you had uh, uh, Jamie Harrison and Chris Tyson down in, in Louisiana. And to see you uh, reach this level of success, it warms my spirit. You know, on my show, though, we, we start the same way, um, which is to have individuals walk us through uh, the arc of their career. Um, and you've been on the show before, so we'll skip that. I do want to talk to you, though, about who is Westmore? And your origin story, because it felt like an attack on you during the pri primary that I want you to clear up and tell people who you are, because I think the most powerful part of your candidacy is how you came to this point in your life. Um, talk us through how we got to the Westmore we have today, particularly your special relationship with the city of Baltimore. Yes. And and I tell you, you know, you, you know what, the, what the media got wrong about this was that for some people, the question of where you, where did you grow up? It's simple, right? Yeah. It's easy. Uh, I never had that luxury because, you know, I was born in Maryland and I'm a third, I'm a third generation Maryland. I was born in Maryland. Uh, but we moved around a lot when I was young, not because of choice, but because of tragedy. Yeah. Because, you know, I was almost four years old when, when my father died in front of me because he didn't get the health care that he needed. And my mother, who was an immigrant to this country, uh, immigrant from Jamaica, then was a single mother who was going to raise three kids on her own. And that was not the life that she prepared for or expected. And, and she moved us and she moved us to go live with her parents, my grandparents who were in the Bronx. My grandfather was a, was a minister and, and my uh, grandmother was a school teacher for almost 40 years. And, uh, and I say their, their house was barely big enough for them, but they figured out a way to make it big enough for all of us. And so we moved to the Bronx and then I spent part of my childhood in the Bronx. And then it wasn't until I was 14 years old, that my mother uh, got her first job that gave her benefits. It was the first job that allowed her to work one job instead of multiple jobs. And that job was in Baltimore. And as, I mean, as my mother said, she's like, once I first, once I first felt Baltimore, uh, I, 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 she's like, you know, I couldn't keep them out because, I, because Baltimore for me, it was the first time that I felt fully embraced. It was the first time that I felt stability. It was the first time that I felt that I now had a place that I could call home and I had a place that was proud to call me a part of that home. Um, and so, so uh, you know, I always say, while I wasn't a Baltimorean by birth, you know, I'm very much a Baltimorean by choice because this was a place that I found belonging. It's a place that I found community. Um, and, you know, what we saw uh, during, a, you know, during a, 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 you know, during a process was we saw people that tried to weaponize that. Um, you know, that, that people didn't understand that, that, uh, that, you know, where I call home, 
um, you know, is very much the place that, that embraced me and that I came of age. And I've been very clear about my past. Everything I've written about it and said about it has been consistent and accurate. Uh, I'm very proud of my story and I have nothing to exaggerate about it. Um, <laughs> but I know that, you know, when I call myself a Baltimorean, I say that with pride because Baltimore has been and will always be my home. I mean, that, that's a, a beautiful story. One of the things I wanted to know in particular is how has your relationship with Baltimore through its ups and downs and trials and tribulations and the mayor there is a friend of the show. Um, I can't stay in the Ravens, but that's a whole nother, whole nother uh, (laughs) special, but how has your relationship with Baltimore created this desire to lead the great state of Maryland and be their next governor? You know, I think it's been one of a, it's been a driving factor and a driving force because you cannot have a, a thriving Maryland if you do not have a thriving Baltimore. And I tell people all the time, people say, well, of course you would say that you're a Baltimorean. And I'd say, yeah, but I also, I say that because I'm good at math. You know, name me a single state in this country that is clicking on all cylinders, but the state's largest city is unhealthy. And when I say it to people, I pause and I say, I'll wait. I'm waiting for you to give me an answer because the answer is there is none. Mm-hmm. Right? In order for Maryland to do what Maryland needs to do, it means that Baltimore must lead. And we have to do, and when we're dealing with a city like Baltimore, that is, again, one of the crown jewels of the state of Maryland, but a place where we've just watched you know, chronic and generational neglect, where we've robbed resources, that Baltimore you know, is the home of, of Thurgood Marshall, and it's also the home of redlining. It is literally where redlining in this country was built that Baltimore you know, is, is the home of some of the best institutions of higher education inside this country to include two of the top HBCUs in America. Yet we have kids who when it hits 90 degrees or 15 degrees had to leave school at noon because we don't have air conditioning or heaters. It's this type of thing that we have to be able to address so many of the challenges that we're seeing at its root causes. And when Baltimore grows and thrives, uh, It's the thing that I know this is going to be Maryland's decade and it's going to be Maryland's decade because Baltimore will help to lead. I'm going to get to some of that in a minute because I, you know, I've been at that precipice of of campaigning and then also having to, to serve. And I'm interested to know how you're going to change that campaign rhetoric and those words into actual policy points. But before I get to that, one of the unique um, things about you in particular is the fact that you know, I always say that a lot of my friends to the right have confused patriotism with prejudice. And I wanted to talk to you about how do we reclaim that? There are a lot of values that Democrats in this country have seeded. Um, there are a lot of areas where we no longer even play. Um, but how do we reclaim that value of patriotism? Because you served our country. Um, and I, that's an important plank um, in your campaign for uh, this uh, gubernatorial uh, race. It is, man. And, and, and I think about it where, you know, when people say, well, who are patriots? You know, you know, Bakari Sellers is a patriot. Cleveland Sellers is a patriot. Right. I think about I think about this idea where, you know, my my grandfather was the first one on my on my mom's side of the family that was born inside this country. Right. Born in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he, and he was the son of a minister. So I would say my whole family, our whole line, we, I come from a long line of preachers and teachers. And, uh, and my great grandfather was a minister and he was a vocal minister, uh, where he didn't just preach the word of God, but he reminded people on earth that you need to act it out here too. 
and eventually got to the point that he started getting threats and eventually uh, picked up his family in the middle of the night uh, because the Ku Klux Klan ran them out. Uh, and, and that included my grandfather, who at that time was just a toddler. And most of my family always pledged that they would never come back to this country. And a lot of my family never did. But my, I would say my grandfather and all of his humility was like, this country would be incomplete without me, right? So he yeah. comes back, he, comes to an H, he goes to an HBCU. He becomes the first black minister in the history of the Dutch Reformed Church. And, uh, and he, he passed away and he transitioned when he was 87 years old had a deep Jamaican accent his entire life, Ricardo. deep Jamaican accent. Right? And I always say, and he maybe was the most patriotic American I've ever met. Because this is a guy who loved this country. He loved what he loved, the fact that this country was evolving and he had a place in it. He loved the fact that this was a place that, that flaws and all, and, and even with the unevenness of our history, that he felt he could put his fingerprints on changing it and making it better. This man was deeply patriotic. And so when I think about this idea of patriotism and why I think it's important for our party, and I think it's important for our culture to embrace this, it's, it's because you know I define patriotism and I take patriotism very seriously. I define patriotism where I left my family and I put on the uniform of this country and I served with the 82nd Airborne Division in Afghanistan leading soldiers uh, in combat where I am literally running against somebody who defines patriotism as putting on a baseball cap and storming the Capitol and asking people to join him uh, as, as, they, as, they call, as he called the vice president a traitor for certifying a legal election. That's not patriotism. That's a bastardization of patriotism. And so I think it becomes really important for us to be able to stand up and be full-throated about that. That, you know, the idea of, of saying that you know, well, we're, that, you know, he, you know, that this is a part of the quote unquote backs the blue. You can't say you back the blue when you back an insurrection. Correct. So it's this type of thing. We need to be unapologetic about this, where we're talking about the future of our communities and the future of our society, things that we have spent our time, our energy and our adult life fighting for. And I refuse to concede that to somebody who has not earned that and somebody who's going to use that line and that phrase something that our families and histories have a legacy of showing patriotism to this country and use it to bastardize it about what the future of our community should be. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit Jiffy Lube. 
Bradshaw.com. Let's talk about leadership and let's talk about your campaign. I mean, for those people who don't know, Maryland is, is, is a unique state. Um, you have the DMV area down near Washington, D.C. You got Baltimore, but you also have a, a huge part of Maryland that is rural. Yes. So what is your what, what's your plan for rural Maryland, uh, Baltimore, which is beset by many challenges and that DMV area? What are you, those three different aspects? What are your what are your plans for those areas? Yeah, I mean, honestly, my plan is that uh, that our message does not change. And people say, well, how do you plan on pivoting your message from the primary to the general? When at first you were talking just to Democrats about the vote and then, and then for the general election population. And my answer is I don't. My, our, our platform is our platform. This is about how do you create pathways for work, wages, and wealth for all families. And when I say that, we're talking to the person in Westminster and the person in West Baltimore. You know, we're talking to the tech entrepreneur and we're talking to the waterman. We're talking to both. And, and the reason when people look at our campaign and we've been campaigning everywhere, Picard, uh, you know, all different areas and people will say, you know, there's not a lot of Democrats out in Harper County or Cecil County or Garrett County. And my answer is, yeah, but there's a lot of Marylanders. But let's talk about this real quick, though. I mean, let's tie it in, because one of the things that's unique about the politics of Maryland, although it's a people from the outside looking in say that it's a liberal state, it also has a really weird independent streak. I mean, as as denoted by Larry Hogan um, being an eight uh, year governor there. Talk, Talk about how you navigate that independent streak with what I would refer to you as being an unabashed progressive. Yes. And, you know, and I, and I tell you, it's because if you think about it, Baltimore, I mean, Maryland as a whole uh, is about, you know, has a higher Democratic registrants than Republican. But to your point, for the past 20 years, we've had a Republican governor for 12 of the 20 years. Uh, and so I think that the, the thing that our campaign is doing and I think why our campaign is catching so much momentum uh, is because we are we're speaking to Democrats, independents and Republicans, and we're talking about issues that matter to Maryland voters. We're talking about things like that, you know, how do you come up with a, how do you focus on public safety, but know that people have a right, yes, to feel safe in their own communities and in their own home, but also in their own skin. How do we talk about economic growth and development that it is about both creating economic pathways for people to have proper work, that we need to be able to raise the minimum wage because we should never have situations where people who are working jobs, in some cases, multiple jobs, and still living below the poverty line. And when we talk about wealth, it means simply the ability to own more than you owe, the ability to pass something off to your children besides debt. And when I'm speaking along those lines, whether you're talking about the Western mountains or the Eastern shore or Baltimore or or Southern Maryland or everywhere in between, uh, they can look back at me and say, that's me too. And I tell them that, you know, even Bikar, I tell them, it's like, you know, when I was, when I was leading soldiers in combat, I said, you know, a question I never once asked my soldiers, what's your political party? It didn't matter, right? We had one job, one goal, one mission. And we went out and had, my job was to unify our unit and accomplish big things. And that's exactly what I plan on doing as the next governor. To get in the weeds just a little bit, I mean, we, we don't want to count our chickens before they proverbially hatch, but everybody wants to know how you're going to lead. You know, Baltimore is unique and Maryland is it kind of popped up out of nowhere with this. Uh, but as a state, it's leading the country with landmark legi- leg- legislation in the Maryland Police Accountability Act. 
which I believe, and I may be mistaken, people will correct me later, but I believe it's the first time a state has created statewide police accountability legislation post George Floyd. I cannot read this morning. So as governor, how do you see your administration implementing this kind of police accountability statewide? And how um, do you do accountability while addressing the very real concerns about public safety across the state? Crime is a real issue. My mama, that's one of her biggest issues, crime. And, you know, I care about police accountability. So how do we how do you find that balance? That's right. And uh, and, you know, the the piece of legislation uh, that that Maryland passed in the last legislative session uh, is an important piece of legislation. You know, Maryland was the first state in the country to, for example, to have a law enforcement officer bill of rights. First state in the country to enact one. Uh, And now Maryland is the first state to pull it back and say, we have to reevaluate this. And there are certain, there are a lot of measures in that bill that are just common sense measures. Things like asking officers to wear body cameras Hmm. and and telling them they need to keep the body cameras on. And that's not just good for the people in communities. That's good for law officers, right? It's important for everybody that we have measures of transparency about these interactions, making sure that when an officer gets transferred from one department to another department, that their record should follow them. That's not just good for the for for the one department being able to be clear about you know the, the situation that calls for that officer to be transferred, but it's important for that new department to have color and context. So there are there are some really important things inside of that bill. The thing we have to do, and I think where you know where I know with our with our administration, we have to do two things, right? You know, we have to focus on both policing reform and policing reinforcement, right? And what I mean by that is this: we need to have a police force that moves with appropriate intensity and absolute integrity and full accountability. And at the same time, we need to make sure that we can address things like where, for example, right now in the state of Maryland, we've got, you know, for all violent offenses in the state of Maryland, a 30, 33% of all people who are involved in violent crimes are people who are in violation of parole and probation. So people who we know who their names are, we know who the violent offenders are who are repeatedly coming back into communities and terrorizing communities and terrorizing our neighborhoods. And when you look at parole and probation, that is a state function. Right now, there's over 100 vacancies in the Department of Parole and Probation in the state of Maryland, which means we have local jurisdictions that are then taking on the weight of the fact that a state function is not being performed. That you can look at right now, the, the, the closure rate for homicides in the city of Baltimore, for example, right now, is 41%. Yeah. That means if I commit a homicide, I got a better chance of getting away with it. Then I do about actually getting captured and tried and convicted. Well, you could actually take state resources like CID, put them on loan to the city of Baltimore, the homicide detectives, because frankly, we have detectives that are just overworked. They're working six, seven, and eight cases. You could actually decrease the workload, increase the closure rate, and help to make communities more safe. But this takes a measure of, of partnership and maturity where, yes, we can say we have to be able to provide resources and supports that our communities feel safe, yet at the same time, we have to make sure we're, po- we're reforming our police force in partnership with our police force to ensure that the officers that are in our communities are reflective of our communities, are respectful of our communities, and that there's transparency in the way that they're doing their work. You know, one of the things you brought up, though, is, is unique because I'm from the Deep South, and I don't know what it's like to have a governor that's helpful. Um, and we saw for the last eight years, one of the unique things that probably kept them elected was Governor Hogan going to war consistently with the city of Baltimore. How do you view that relationship between your office and being a partner with the city of Baltimore from Annapolis? And by the way, folks, Baltimore is not the capital of Maryland for anybody who doesn't know that the capital of Maryland, Maryland 
is Annapolis. So how how do you keep that relationship? Well, I I think we have to we have to have a governor that actually cares about the relationship, Uh, you know, because right now, I mean, what we don't need in the state of Maryland is is a governor who every time he says the word Baltimore, it is with disdain Mm -hmm. and talks about it like it's not part of the state of Maryland because politically it's 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 beneficial. Baltimore needs a partner. And, and, and if you look at it for, you know, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like you, brother, like I'm, I'm a data nerd. I like getting into the into the into the, the details of the numbers. If you look at a data set of Maryland and a history, a 40 year history for the state of Maryland. And if you look at the times and the moments when Baltimore has had some of the some of its best trajectories, right, when all of its key indicators have been moving in the right direction, decreased crime rates, increased economic activity, all the kind of things that we look at when you look at municipal health. Yeah. The really important thing to look at is, isn't in Baltimore's history, it isn't necessarily who was the mayor. It is imperative that the city of Baltimore, the state's largest city, has a strong relationship with the chief executive who is sitting inside of Annapolis. And people will see that that's not just to the benefit of Baltimore. If you have a growing Baltimore, you will have a growing state. We've seen the same thing with Detroit and its relationship with Michigan, the same thing with Atlanta and its relationship with Georgia, the same thing with with, with Pittsburgh and its relationship with Pennsylvania. If you can drive economic growth, you are gonna have the whole state benefit from increased GDP, increased tourism dollars, increased economic activity. One of the things that's gonna be a key to that though is something that's on the ballot with you in November, which is cannabis. How will you work to ensure that the Maryland cannabis market becomes the most equitable one in the country for minority cannabis entrepreneurs? Yes, and, and, it, and it needs to be. And, and I think there's, there's two things that we've gotta do simultaneously uh, because it is on the ballot right now in November. Uh, you know, I, I, I believe it is going to pass overwhelmingly and Maryland will join the ranks truthfully of its neighbors. Right. Uh, You know, the first thing is you cannot talk about the benefits of legalization without also addressing the consequences of criminalization. Right. We've seen how criminalization has just battered communities. And and that means we are going to have to do certain things and do them immediately. And that means certain things like automatic expungement of criminal records. Uh, You cannot have a burgeoning and a growing industry while we have people who cannot find employment, people who cannot find housing, people who cannot get into, into institutions of higher education because of something that is now a future multi-billion dollar market. Uh, and so also creating economic pathways for them to be able to re-enter back into society and re-enter back into industries. Pipelining job work, job retraining and job reskilling. Mm-hmm. Removing the barriers, for example, that mean that if a person has a cannabis charge, that they cannot participate in the cannabis industry. Yep. Those are things we have to deal with immediately. But also it does mean, how are we thinking about equity and ownership inside of this field as well? Right now, the state of Maryland has an eight to one racial wealth gap. And you and I know that that's not because one group is working eight times harder, right? We continue to have policies and systems that allow this wealth gap to exist and for this wealth gap to grow. And so as we're watching entry into the market, and that isn't just the growers, it's the people who are doing the para, it's the people who are doing the processing. This is a massive industry that we need to make sure that there's equity and fairness, both in who is participating in the industry who has ownership within the industry and how are we thinking about the revenues and targeting the revenues in communities that have been disproportionately harmed and hurt in a fair and equitable way as well. One of the larger questions I have for you that we're running out of time, I got two, two important questions after this, but one of the larger questions, and you can just give me your 50,000 foot view. My daddy was pissed the other day because the price of whiting had gone up 
at, at the, the uh, Piggly Wiggly in Denmark. And I know that there are a lot of grocery prices, gas prices, inflation is a very real issue um, for the pocketbooks of Marylanders. That's what y'all call yourself, right? Marylanders? Yes, sir. All yes, right. Sir. And what's your what's your goal? I mean, I, are you thinking outside of the box, like maybe a temporary suspension of the gas tax? Or what, what are some of the things you think you'll be able to accomplish as governor to help what is not a problem that is a domestic problem? What we're seeing is inflation that is a global issue. But how does the governor of the little state of Maryland, by comparison to the world, com- compete and combat inflation? Yeah, I mean, the thing that the thing that the governor can uniquely do, because you're right, I mean, the governor can't necessarily impact on, on the demand side. The governor can impact on the supply side. And what we've got to do is we've got to get people back to work. Uh, and that includes things like we've got to fix a broken child care system, where since COVID, we've had over 750 child care centers close. And the problem is that's not only harmful to children, that's harmful to parents and particularly parents, you know, of, of young children, right? Because if they have to make a choice between going back to work and being able to support their children, that's not helpful to them. And it's not helpful to our economy. We get these child centers going back up. It's getting people back into the workforce, particularly women. And oftentimes the, the heads of these childcare centers are female entrepreneurs, but they are never treated as such. We can fix that. It means doing things like having, making sure we're investing in free pre-K for every child in need in the state of Maryland. And the data could not be more clear on this. 80% of brain development happens in a child by the time that child is five years old. So while we have children starting school at five makes no sense, we have to fix that in Maryland and get it done immediately. It'll also help get parents back into the workforce. We also have to do things like increasing wages where you know, right now, Maryland is set to go to a $15 minimum wage by 2025. Uh, that number is old already. When you're looking at the inflationary pressures that people are facing, we've got to get to that number next year and we've got to peg it to inflation. So people who are working, and in many cases working multiple jobs, still have a chance to be able to not have to, not have to live at or below a poverty line. Because if you're not incentivizing work, then people won't do it. And the third thing, and the third thing we really got to do, Bakari, is we've got to make sure that we are creating an ownership society uh, where we are providing supports for first-time home buyers. We have to address the issue of unfair appraisal values in historically redlined neighborhoods. If we don't do that, and because by the way, unfair appraisal values has been one of the greatest wealth thefts that we have seen across the country since its inception. But if we are not addressing those big things, then the inflationary pressure that people continue to feel, it will be compounded. And those are things, while a governor doesn't sit on the Fed board, uh, things like getting people back to work, giving people fair wages, making sure that we're creating an ownership society, those are things that the governor is responsible for and the governor can help with that will make an immediate impact on Marylanders who are trying to deal with the fact that things feel more expensive because they are. One of my last questions for you is, how's your wife handling being the future first lady, are you making sure that, you know, one of the things that I had to tell uh, Clay Middleton, who hopefully will be the next governor of, I mean, uh, mayor of Charleston, is I said, one of the things, one of the mistakes I made was I thought, you know, inviting my wife to campaign events was like, you know, spending time together, but you literally have to carve out, you know, alone time for you and your wife. How is it being a father and a husband and a campaigner and the future leader of the great state of Maryland? You know, I, I got to tell you, Bukhar, I mean, what, one thing I, I tell people um, who are thinking about this is if your family's not all in, yeah, be careful. Yeah. 
Uh, this would be a very different experience if I had a different partner on this journey. And that's, that's just the reality. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for the fact that, uh, you know, my wife, uh, first of all, she, she, she came up in this world. I mean, she's, she's, you know, the former chief of staff to Anthony Brown, who's a congressman now in Maryland, who, you know, hopefully is about to become the next attorney general. Uh, she worked for Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, who's the former lieutenant governor. Uh, so she understood this world. So she's actually been providing me a lot, <laughs> a lot of the education that I didn't know when she's like, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Uh, and so having her having that experience, um, and that preparation and frankly, that patience, yeah. uh, I, I think was, uh, what was really important. But I, I think the thing that also became really important on this journey, um, was, was, was this where she told me, she's like, I, I know who I married, right? I know I married someone who believes deeply in public service and is going to always try to find ways, uh, to be able to do it. And she said to me, she said, listen, if if you decide to do this, um, you will be the one they never will see coming. And it'll be your time. And she said that when- And we'll be broke forever. Is that what- And we'll be broke broke forever. (laughs) But that's the thing. It's like, but when you know that, when you know you're going through this process um, with someone who believes in the moment, yeah. Right. Someone who for her, I, mean, I think about her and her journey. I mean, she is the uh, you know, she is the, the, the daughter of of a, of a school teacher and a, and, a, and a third generation operating engineer union person. Uh, she knows the importance of policy. She knows the impacts when policies are put in place to help people. And when she knows the, what it looks like when policies are put in place to intentionally harm them. Uh, and so having her on this journey has uh, has been has been amazing. Um, not just because I love the way the state is falling in love, uh, but also just because she every day gives me another reason to, uh, to fall in love with her as well. Last question. Why the hell will you not pay Lamar Jackson what he's worth? What, I mean, what, what are y'all doing? I got to tell you, I have been screaming this from the rooftops to anybody that will listen. (laughs) This man is responsible for 84% of the offense. Not only that, he's responsible for at least 15% of the economy. Exactly. <laughs> just, just pay the man what he's worth. And, and the thing is, is that, and the thing is, if you do not pay him now, what his price tag is going to be at the end of the year, it will just come keep on compounding. He is such a, he, he is such a generational and a special, special talent. And he's his own agent. What's going to happen is he's going to, David, David Tepper doesn't know his ass from his elbows as the <laughs> owner of the Panthers, but he will pay for Lamar Jackson. <laughs> yes, he will. Yes, he will. Because this dude, I'm telling you, he is, he is the type of person that, that, you know, with Lamar Jackson, we are legitimate. Super Bowl contender every year. This year, every, every year. year, legitimate Super Bowl contender. Without him, you are lucky if you're the third best team in your division. Yeah. He's that good, yeah. and you gotta pay him. You gotta pay him. Anyway, you I love you, Wes. Go out and campaign, knock on some doors, kiss some babies, <laughs> uh, shake some hands, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Westmore, the next governor of the great state of Maryland. Hopefully, we call that race at seven oh one. Y'all polls close at seven. He'll close at eight. Eight eight oh one. Hopefully, we call yeah. we call that race at eight oh one on CNN. I want to be on set when we do it, my brother. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you soon. Love you, brother. Thank you so much, man, for everything. Hey, man, and stop sending me them automated text messages. I think I done maxed out, but I don't even know. <laughs> Y'all send me text messages every day. That's probably Connor. Connor probably sending me them text messages every day. All right, y'all be safe. Have fun. Thanks, man.